Is it time for Miracle on 34th Street? Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Jason Moser. Jason, how was your weekend? It was a good weekend, Deidre. How about, how about yours? Pretty good. Uh, I'm starting to, every Sunday though, I, I start looking at the laptop. I start wondering what the news is. Uh, you know, la- last few Sundays have, have been pretty pretty good for me as a, as a news junkie and did not disappoint this weekend. The, the hot rumor, the rumor that is, uh, you know, sort of sort of dominating the stock market today too, is that Macy's might be acquired and taken private for 5.8 billion. This is with a couple of private equity funds, including Arkhouse Management and Brigade Capital Management. I mean, the deal would be for around a premium of 32% for shareholders, based on when the deal was announced, uh, or it was it like brought up at the end of November. Uh, Stock has been battered around for a bit, so that that is a premium based on where we were, but not not from where the stock has been over time. But then today, the stock has been up practically to the level of twenty one dollars a share. Is this a deal that shareholders should should want? If I were a shareholder, which I'm not, but if I were, I, I would think so. Yes, I mean we we've talked about Macy's, I, I think, uh, for 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 a number of years on these on these shows and. We've kind of always just come back to the same ultimate conclusion: is just it, it's a business that just remains challenged because it, it, maybe it's not really necessarily a Macy's world anymore, right? I think right. Ron Gross years back asked the question: Does the world really need J.C. Penney, right? When we were talking about J.C. Penney's woes, I, I feel like that question more or less applies here too, at least to a degree, right? I mean. Macy's has more or less been treading water here over the last several years, trying to figure out the most sensible path forward. I mean, when you look at the metrics, the numbers, it really does it, it really does tell you a tale of a challenged business. You go back to 2014, they chalked up revenue just under $28 billion. Today, that's $23 billion. The margin picture just continues to get incrementally worse. Uh, very concerning to me, cash and short-term investments, going back 10 years, it stood at $2.3 billion. Today, $364 million, right? That is a massive cash burn. And the stock is down 60% over that stretch. And that's with the share account being down 25% as well. They bought back shares, brought that share account down. In theory, it's supposed to have the opposite impact, right? But this really goes back to just what we've been talking about Macy's. It's just a business that's living in a different retail world. I'm not necessarily certain the world needs it. Maybe it does. But if I'm a shareholder of Macy's today, I'm feeling pretty good about this offer and hoping that it goes through. Yeah, that is a question I'm asking myself, too, is, is do we still need department stores? And I think we'll get into that in a little bit. I wanted to talk first about why this deal. And I feel like part of it is, you know, it's the real estate. And a lot of that is that Herald Square location, you know, the famous big Macy's. I mean, you know, every everyone knows the big Macy's. And, you know, in 2021, they announced this, this uh, plan to redevelop it. They've got a whole website dedicated to it. They're going to put this giant 900-foot uh, office building on top of you know, and in 2021, the office buildings, huh? But uh, so real estate is part of the play here. Uh, what do you think? I mean, we saw the Lord and Taylor building in New York become this beautiful workspace for Amazon. But what do you think the odds are of Macy's eventually becoming a skyscraper here? Yeah, it reminds me a bit of the Sears thesis back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. Where Sears was really kind of uh, going through the same 
process. And in, in the general thesis there for investors was the real estate, the real estate, the real estate. And I think that that's certainly something that comes into play here. I mean, the back of the envelope valuations, you've got Macy's real estate valued anywhere from $6 billion to potentially $8 billion or more. I mean, there's an asset there that, that certainly could be um, exploited. But, you know, Macy's is a retailer, right? They're not a real estate company per se. So, I mean, it's hard to imagine how all of the real estate would be used. I'm sure it ultimately would vary by location. I'm not sure office space is the most obvious option in every yeah. case, but depending on certain locations, it absolutely could be a part of it, right? I mean, we are seeing slowly but surely offices haven't completely gone the way, the way of the dodo bird yet. But I mean, there are other use cases like fulfillment and distribution. I'm talking about converting some of these types of locations into more residential use cases, whether that's schools or apartments or condos or whatever. So, I mean, I, I think ultimately that's that's the attraction with such a real estate portfolio is there are a lot of different ways they could go with it. And I think that goes back to the fact that really when we're looking at Macy's as a company, they're not the company. This really isn't the leadership team that would be able to... I think exploit the value in that real estate portfolio as much as say the acquirers that are that are certainly more real estate focused. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting that you that you brought up Sears because thinking about what they what they tried to do, you know, we had uh, Seritage, the spinoff of all of the properties. Yeah. They were going to develop that. They got whacked during the the pandemic. They couldn't build things fast enough to to really satisfy the debt there. And now. Now they're just basically, they're just winding down that wreath. They're just selling everything off. So, I mean, the problem with, you know, having the development be part of the thesis is you just never know what those external factors that are going to be. Exactly. And I think it's interesting you mentioned the leadership because Macy's is right about in the midst of this leadership transition. So Jeff Jeanette, he's been there as he's been with the company for over 20 years, I think, but he's. Uh, been in the CEO seat since about, since 2017. So you've got this new CEO, Tony Spring, stepping in. This has been that long transition. You know, we've known about this one for a while. They've talked a lot about the ways that they're pivoting. So like getting away from being that anchor location, they're trying out smaller stores, and they've been talking on the last couple of earnings calls. They're seeing great success with this. You know, better sales per uh, per square foot and things like that. If this gets taken over, it sounds like. It's going to be a whole different strategy. I mean, it's hard to know because we won't we you know we won't be privy to to, to we won't get the earnings calls. We won't be privy to it. But it seems like it would be a strategy shift, right? I think it would have to be right. I mean, Macy's was born in a different time when retail was just in a very different place. I mean, malls aren't necessarily this massive growth opportunity that they once were. Um, I mean, retailers across the board focusing now more on omnichannel. Um, lighter cost structures, being able to do more with less, um, as we as consumers just have a number of different ways we can ultimately get our stuff. I, I mean, there's definitely I, 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 there's definitely something to the brand, right? There's some brand equity here that matters. So, so ultimately, is is this just something where Macy's continues to exist just in a smaller form? I think that's most likely the case. But yet, yeah, new leadership is is going to have their work cut out for them. Well, it's interesting too because you talked about J.C. Penney, and I've been watching the the different the different swings they've been taking. So first, they thought they were going to really aim at busy suburban moms, so they came out with this like athleisure line, and they sort of and they 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 sort of said that's our core customer, and now they've sort of gone more back toward their roots and being value and trying to make that work. I think with Macy's, it's interesting because you've got. 
they're still primarily a department store. I mean, they've got a good online experience. They, but it's not, you know, there's there's too much. There's so much competition there. You've got the rewards membership. They've got a really good rewards program. It drives around seventy two percent of their sales at this point. They're doing some store in store stuff with Toys R Us. It seems like they're trying a lot of things. But I mean, the core question is. Uh, do we still need department stores? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I, I think that really is. That is the core question. I mean, you make a good point there in regard to their Star Wars program. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty-five or so million members, give or take, today. And like yeah. you said, they drive such a majority of sales. I mean, that does matter, right? It, it, they do. They do have some brand loyalty there, but the department store just doesn't carry the same weight as it once did, right? I mean, we. Talk about places like Target and Walmart that are becoming sort of those everything stores. I mean, you've got obviously Amazon, which ultimately is the everything store. But think about Amazon, Target, and Walmart. What's one thing all three of those concepts have in common that Macy's, to my knowledge, does not? <laughs> Grocery. Right? I mean, yeah. you can go get virtually anything you want, including groceries at all of these different retailers now. And so for something like a Macy's, you know, you're going there with intent, right? You may be going there just to kind of shop around and find something you may not even know what it is, but but you're going there with some sort of intent. We've definitely seen concepts like Target and others benefit uh, from the store with a store concept, right? Dick's Sporting Goods, same thing. Opening those Ultas or those Under Armour Nike stores within within their stores. Uh, J.C. Penney tried it, I think, to, to an extent with Sephora as well. I, you know, listen, man. I, I think this the easy the easy solution here. At Macy's links up with Trader Joe's. You open up Trader Joe's within the <laughs> Macy's store. Problem solved. I like that. Yeah, uh, J.C. Penney tried with Sephora, and uh, and they lost that deal. And now Kohl's has it, and yeah. the Sephora stores have been basically holding Kohl's up at this point. I mean, they're putting they're putting a Sephora anywhere they can at this point. Cosmetics are just a phenomenal business. I mean, we've seen it with Ulta too. I mean, Ulta has really rebounded uh, from from the challenges over the past few years. I mean, cosmetics and beauty, just a resilient, uh, very attractive, pardon the pun, but very attractive market. Very very difficult to disrupt. Very difficult to disrupt. I want to talk about one more sort of acquisition that wasn't. We were following this last week. Potentially a huge mega deal between Cigna and Humana would have been this massive deal in the healthcare space. Uh, went from being a rumor, and then over the weekend, Cigna said, "You know, we're doing a buyback of ten billion dollars instead." So they didn't reference the deal, but definitely the 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 uh, the message was like, "Hey, we have a better place to put our money." <laughs> so the market was up. Uh, Cigna's been up on the news. Uh, what do you? What what killed the deal? Do you think it was the fear of the fact that uh, it never would have gone through? I have to believe that they were batting that around. To me, I mean, this would have been a field day for regulators, right? I mean, this oh, would yeah. have absolutely been put through the ringer. I'm not saying it couldn't have happened, but maybe you know that. The, the line is that it was it was price, right? The companies couldn't agree on price, and so we'll just, yeah. we'll just amicably amicably part ways. And and I'm sure there was something to that as well. But I think that they just ultimately maybe saw the deck stacked against them, all things considered, and said, "Hey, now is not the time." And and I I will say this. I mean, understanding today that they say they couldn't agree on price, I, I think you and I and probably everybody else under the sun knows that this would have been you know just a field day for regulators as well. I wouldn't be shocked, okay? And and not saying this will happen, but I wouldn't be shocked to at least see this deal 
back on the table in some form or another, depending on the outcome of next year's election, right? That's just something to keep in mind. 2024 is going to be probably a crazy year on the political side. Who knows how things are going to shake out? But we do know that you know the, the current administration is keeping a very close eye on big deals like this. And you know, if if that if you know, the White House switches over next year, I mean that that perspective could change. Um, and if it does, then then maybe you see companies feeling like. Um, you know the 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 landscape for consolidation is a little bit more friendly, and they start to entertain deals like this. It's just something to keep in mind. Yeah, and it may not it may not even need to be a a shift in leadership. It may just be that the the, the tide sort of shifts already. I mean, we've already sort of seen some deals that we thought wouldn't go through actually go through. So yeah. I mean, I mean, it may end up being that you know that you don't need that shift in order for things to change. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, ultimately, you just you want deals like this to prove value, but but you ha- you have to be careful. I mean, I mean, there are plenty of examples out there where just the big get bigger, and and um, you know, ultimately they get so big that that it really starts to limit the options for consumers, and, and that's what we don't want. Yeah, and and you know, Cigna has talked a little bit too, or there have been stories about potential smaller acquisitions and sort of like little tuck-ins and bolt-ons. So, I mean, you never you never know what could happen in terms of maybe Humana spins off something or, you know, some part of it ends up being in there. So, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the full the full thing in order to, for these companies to keep talking. Exactly. If Microsoft and Activision Blizzard figured out a, made a, a way to make it work, I think anything's possible at this point. <laughs> Well, uh, I kind of want to ask a related question about that. You know, thinking about stock buybacks, you know, we want to see a stock back buyback when when shares are cheap. Cigna, so it's ten billion. They said they're going to buy back five billion before the middle of twenty twenty four. So they really put this. They put a relatively short timeline on it. It's it's sort of cheap now, but it's not super super cheap. And certainly today, it's not as as cheap because it's gone <laughs> up on the on the uh, on the news. But is this buyback a signal that they don't see anything else worth spending capital on? And do you want them to buy to buy back no matter what, even if the shares maybe aren't as, as cheap as they were? Well, I'm sure employees of the business could probably make a case for some of that capital being diverted to them, right? I mean, I think that's well, yeah. always something. <laughs> yes, it's always something that I, I think is worth entertaining for these businesses, particularly as they get larger. But with that said, uh, I mean, to your point on on valuation on the shares, I mean, they're down around 10% year to date, um, 15 times earnings, around two times book value, seven times free cash flow. It's absolutely not an expensive looking stock, and this is a company with a a, a long history of, of repurchasing shares. Share counts down over 23% over the last five years alone. They've spent 22 billion, over 22 billion dollars uh, on, on 22 billion dollars on repurchases since then. So this is this is not their first rodeo, so to speak. So I, you know, I mean, I, I think this is just this is something you get with a business like this. They are looking for ways to return value to shareholders. Share repurchases are are one of one of the ways they can do that. And, and at least the repurchases are having the intended effect, right? The share count down twenty three percent. That's nothing to seize at. Well, we talked about two two deals that weren't. Do you think there's going to be one or two more big deals before the year ends? Oh wow! I mean, you know, honestly, the, the deal that I'm following, which is just to me a fascinating soap opera, is this entire PGA Live Tour thing. 
uh, bringing yeah. in this new consortium of of sports owners who are trying to sort of figure out their way to participate in this along with uh, PIF and the Saudis. I, it, this And they set the target date for December 31st. So uh, while that's not something that should have a big impact on public markets, it, it could have it could have second order implications on on the content that we're getting and whatnot. So that that's the one I'm really keeping my eye on. Awesome. We'll have to talk to you after uh, after the year ends to figure out what happened next with that one. You got it. <laughs> All right. Thanks for the time today, Jason. Thank you. Boston Omaha welcomes comparisons to Berkshire Hathaway. Has the company earned that swagger? Matt Frankel and Ricky Mulvey explore the potential of this conglomerate in the making. So, Matt, Boston Omaha has its has has its arms in a number of different businesses. It can be a little bit of a difficult business to to understand. Uh, can can you do the can you do the quick introduction? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting company because Boston Omaha itself doesn't really do a whole lot. Uh, it's a holding company, um, kind of in the sense that Berkshire Hathaway is a holding company. It doesn't really have much of its own businesses, but owns a lot of other things. So, there's four main parts of Boston Omaha's business. It has its billboard rental business, which is called Link Media. It's pretty widespread in the in the Midwest area. If you're ever driving through Omaha itself, you'll see a bunch of Link billboards. They have an insurance business called General Indemnity, which sells insurance uh, surety bonds. They have a broadband uh, uh, fiber to the home broadband business, um, which goes under a few different brand names depending on where it's located. And they also have Boston Omaha Asset Management, which kind of is a collection of other assets the company owns. Um, it owns a minority stake in a few businesses. It owns, as the name implies, an asset manager. And it owns a few other little kind of you know, interesting investments that it kind of bundled into one division. Yeah, let's focus on the asset management business. I think that's where at least I have some confusion. It has major projects in build-to-rent housing, broadband, internet, but it also has a lot of exposure in commercial real estate. I think that may be something that investors are, are reacting to right now. If you look at the website, it, it does say it has office investments, but I, I have trouble finding the story beyond that. So, what what's the commercial real estate story for for Boston Omaha right now? Yeah, well, the commercial real estate story came. Um, they they owned a minority stake in an investment manager called Twenty Fourth Street Asset Management, and recently acquired the rest of it. They acquired acquired the whole thing, so now that's you know it's included in Boston Omaha Asset Management. So now they had minority exposure. Now they have kind of direct exposure. Twenty Fourth Street Asset Management operates two closed end funds today. As you mentioned, there is some office exposure. It's not a ton. Are the office investments a concern? We don't really know the details. It's a very it's been a private business till now, so they don't have to report you know what the funds are doing to anybody. So there's a lot that we don't know about it, which I think is more than the office performance itself. I think the fact that we really don't know a whole lot about their commercial real estate dealings so far is is giving investors concern. It goes back to what's the old saying? I'm not I'm not mad because of what you did. I'm mad because you didn't tell me. <laughs> right, and there's a lot of that with Boston Omaha. I feel like you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little more. But they don't communicate very well with investors. They don't host earnings calls. They don't do things like that. And I think that plays a lot into the stock performance. They're they're trying to be very Buffett esque. Which I get, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, it doesn't seem to be working. We'll get to that, and I, I, we're we're a we're in a little bit of a negative place, and they they don't communicate well. They have unknown commercial real estate exposure, but I know you're a Boston Omaha bull. So what I mean, what's your long term thesis then for for Boston Omaha? 
I mean, for for me, the asset management business is you know the big potential area. I like the billboard business. The billboard business and broadband businesses, especially, have fantastic economics. Uh, their broadband business, you know, they're doing fiber to the home broadband, so it's essentially a one-time capital outlay, and then it's you know a great cash flow generator. So that business can have like ninety percent margins, or ninety percent gross margins over time. So those are three great businesses that they've just been in. The asset management business is really the X factor here. They own a stake in a company called Sky Harbor. That was uh, that's the biggest investment the company's made to date. But the real potential is what they're trying to do in built for rent housing and broadband, which you kind of alluded to earlier, in the sense that they're trying to raise outside capital to invest. And this can be, you know, a, a home run source of revenue if things go correctly. That's a big if. But like for example, let's say you raise a hundred million dollars from outside investors to invest in built for home built for rent housing. You end up doubling that over a period of five years, and if you agree to get say ten percent of any investment profits, that's a ten million dollar windfall that you didn't have to put up any of your own capital or, or or assets for. So now imagine if you're doing that over time with a billion dollars of investor money or ten billion dollars of investor money, like some of the bigger players do. So that's where the if if you establish a track record in in, in asset management, that's where the real X factor lies because it's really asset light capital. And then all the other businesses can generate capital to help grow, grow that side of the business because they do want to invest alongside all of their uh, outside investors. Yeah, right now the biggest revenue driver is the is the billboard business. But it, the the key part with the asset management that I I do give them props for is that they invest a lot of their own money alongside the the folks who are in those funds. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of a big part of their thesis is that they want to benefit when they're. When their investors do well, but also to share if their investors go down, it kind of you know a lot of skin in the game, which we really like to see here. So right now, the company is in a little bit of an interesting spot, especially it is a as a asset management business, a collection of businesses, because it is uh, the price is trading below its its book value, which is just the accounting value of its assets minus its liabilities. We'll get back to Boston Omaha in a sec, but. Why is it significant in general for for any business, especially one like this, to trade below its book value? Well, one book value doesn't do a great job of valuing a business like this. I, I mentioned Berkshire. Berkshire has said that book value is kind of you know garbage right now. Uh, it doesn't. It used to base its buyback plan off book value, and it doesn't use that anymore. For example, but it usually underestimates the company's value. So for a company like this to be trading below its book value, that, that's kind of it, it's odd. And it, it it's it's close to book value, but it has Boston Omaha hasn't traded below book value as a public company. Even like during the the initial COVID crash, it never got below its book value. So I, I I'm kind of shaking my head a little bit on this as well. And it a lot of it's that the market doesn't know how to value it. A lot of it's because the market doesn't know about its office assets and things like that, like you mentioned. And it's a rare case because the stock's like drawn down about fifty percent this year, while the market's done well. So I'm shaking my head a bit as well. Yeah, I mean, and I know you've written about this a couple of times, where it's like there's only two. What is it? There's two Wall Street analysts who follow this company. So maybe it's tough to tell what investors are discounting about it. I have to think there's something beyond just it being in the too hard pile in a little, in potentially a little bit of office real estate. Yeah, it, it, a lot of people do put it in the too hard pile. It's a very long-term focused investment, like to an extreme case. You know, a lot of companies are like I, I invest in, say, Bank of America. That's definitely a long-term investment. 
But in the meantime, they pay me a dividend, they hold quarterly earnings calls, they make money, you know, things like that. So this is an extreme long-term investment, which a lot of people don't really know how to value. Um, and I do think a lot of people put it in the too hard basket, and I'm hoping they'll regret being wrong. So right now, the the company it's it's on. While the market's been up, this company has has taken a downturn in 2023. One move for for these capital allocators that and, and to to be transparent, I, I own some shares in Boston Omaha, but it also has me shaking my head a bit, which is that they're issuing shares for cash right now. Um, they're building up their cash reserve, and as the stock has gone down, they're issuing more and more shares to to grow that cash pile. What's what's going on here? What what are, what's the what's the capital allocation strategy that I that I don't understand? Well, th- to be fair, I'll push back a little bit on that. They haven't issued any new shares for the past two quarters. Okay. So as the bulk of this the 2023 drawdown has happened, they've stopped issuing shares. And I spoke to Alex Alex uh, Rosick, the CEO, recently, and he specifically said that that's not a desirable way to raise capital right now. So, credit where it's due. I wish they would do a buyback or a tender offer or something to kind of you know put investors in the other direction who kind of feel the same way you have. Because you're right, in the past say year, they've done a lot more of selling shares for cash than buying back shares, without any clear use for the money. Because at the time they sold shares, say in the first quarter, they already had something like fifty million dollars in the bank, which for a sub five hundred million dollar company is a lot. So it's like, well, you know, why did they think the stock was too expensive at that point? Um, which is kind of where investors' heads go. I don't think that was their rationale, uh, and they address this at their annual meeting a little bit. But that's it. It does kind of, you know, make you question why they're selling shares. Especially, I mean, what was it a year ago? Where what was it? Their their the the leaders. I think the leaders said this, where it was like we have too many, simply too many opportunities. Right, and that that was the whole rationale behind launching Boston Omaha Asset Management in the way, like the raising outside capital. They mentioned broadband specifically. They see like five hundred million dollars of opportunities to attack, and they obviously can't do that with their own capital. So instead of raising five hundred million dollars by selling shares, raising outside capital to help uh, invest in that is you know more desirable. So, speaking of investor communication, you mentioned you had a conversation with co-CEO Alex Rozek. Uh, what'd you learn? Yeah, apparently, instead of having earnings calls, they just you know talk to me for an hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. They, you know, all jokes aside, I love that they're very approachable CEOs. Even at their annual meeting, just it's not like the Berkshire annual meeting. Like anyone can walk up to the CEOs and just have a conversation. It's really very, very open communication in that sense. But like you said, the company does not host earnings calls. They generally don't talk to analysts. In you know, maybe maybe me, uh, but they really don't talk to analysts. They don't give commentary in their earnings reports. They issue quarterly earnings reports, but there's no like management quotes that are usually at the top of earnings reports. And Alex even kind of acknowledged to me that they need to do a better job of communication, but he doesn't really know what that should look like. Like you know, how do you increase communication? While still saying don't worry about the quarterly numbers and things like that as much, so it is kind of a balancing act. But he agrees the market really doesn't know how to value the stock. And just kind of just to give you a fun example, uh, I mentioned they own a lot of Sky Harbor. Sky Harbor makes up almost thirty percent of Boston Omaha's market cap right now. There was a, a you know three day period a couple weeks ago where Sky Harbor went up forty percent, and Boston Omaha stock didn't budge. Now that rep- that it should have been up like fifteen percent in that time. Because you know, if Apple went up by 20-30%, Berkshire Hathaway stock would probably go up too because it owns so much of it. So it's just kind of a head scratcher in, in a, a lot of ways because the market really doesn't seem to to know what to do here. 
So, and, and to backtrack just a sec, Sky Harbor is a it's it's a private. They basically own um, private hangars for uh, for private jets going in and out of different airports. Yeah, and, and Sky Harbor, to my knowledge, I don't know if you know any, Ricky, but is out of the big SPAC boom. I don't know any SPACs that are trading for more than their ten dollars initial price, other than Sky Harbor. So I'd it's looking to, like one one of the few success stories. I'd have to start googling, and that's that's terrible <laughs> podcasting. But yeah, I think I think I want to leave it kind of with this question. You know, Boston Omaha really. I, I would say there is a, a welcome comparison to, uh, to to Berkshire Hathaway. They got Omaha in the name. There's there's the familiar connect, the familial connection with uh, Warren Buffett. But I don't know. I mean, do you think it's earned that swagger to to not host quarterly earnings calls, not talk to analysts? Why not pre-announce your earnings date and make it a little bit easier for the investors trying to follow your company? I mean, I would have to say no. They have not earned that that type of swagger yet. Uh, with with Berkshire, it certainly makes sense. You know, Buffett's mentality is you know I've I've doubled the annualized returns of the S and P for over fifty years. Shut up and trust the process. You, he's kind of earned the right to say that. But even when like the sky is falling, Buffett's out on CNBC calming investors down. Yeah. So it, I feel like you need to earn some sort of a track record to get to that point. And it sounds like Alex kind of agrees somewhat. He just doesn't really know what communication should look like at this point. I feel like they're trying to be a little too Buffett-esque at times. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. tomorrow.